Hi, welcome to Lights, Camera, Author. I'm Jim Juno, and this, of course, is the podcast and the show that we talk with authors who write books about entertainment, classic Hollywood, music, and basically anything that catches our fancy. And I have with me tonight a very special guest. Her name is Jude Sutherland Kessler. And Jude, would it be fair to say that you are probably the, the foremost expert on John Lennon that there is? I hope so. There are so many great people who've written books about John. Ray Connolly wrote Being John Lennon. Philip Norman did John Lennon, The Life. Tim Riley did a book called Lennon. Of course, the preeminent Lennon biographer for years and years and years was the great late Ray Coleman, who passed away a few years ago. And he did the gigantic book, Lennon, that he then revised and enhanced. And I'm sure that when Ray was alive, that he was the preeminent Lennon biographer. But I've undertaken the insane task of writing nine volumes on John's life. And I'm up to five point two because five was so large. 1965 was so busy that I had to divide that into two 800 page books. Wow. Wow. <laughs> You know, each one of the books so far has been over 750 pages, 4,000 footnotes. I'm moving day by day through John's life. And uh, when we get to the Beatle breakup, then I won't be doing day by day. We'll we'll move kind of month to month. But still, I've put 36 years into um, this series. So hopefully I've. On top of the linen subject. <laughs> <laughs> now, your most recent one. Now, the recent one was an audio book of. Now, let me make sure I get this right. The volume three, which yes. is "She Loves You." That's what it's called. And yes. <laughs> excuse me, the first the first one was called "Should Have Been There," uh-huh. uh, and that was nineteen forty to nineteen sixty one. And then uh, volume two was called "Shivering Inside," which dealt from. December 61 up through April 63, right before Beatlemania started to take hold. And then She Loves You, which is volume three, and Should Have Known Better, which was volume four, which, uh, well, volume three goes from May 63 to March 64. And then uh, volume four goes from February 64 to January 65. And then Shades of Life, part one, which goes from January 65 to August 65, where does where does the Shades of Life Part Two go to? It will start on the day that um, Shades of Life Part One ended on the thirteenth of August, Friday the thirteenth, which is the day that the Beatles flew to America for the nineteen sixty five North American tour, <clears throat> and that's going to include Shea Stadium, that right. first mega concert, and meeting Elvis for the first time face to face. And um, excuse me, <clears throat> you and I are both just battling that winter it's stuff. Catching, it's catching. Yeah. It's this is called a yeah. computer virus, yeah. you know. <laughs> that's it. That's it. And then um, they will uh, go on to record Rubber Soul. They will move into 1966 and do Revolver, and the book will end at Candlestick Park on the 1966 North American tour after they play that last note. And George Harrison says. Well, I'm not a Beatle anymore. You know, they're they're not going to anymore. That will be the end of Shades of Life Part Two, which will come out in one year if I keep my nose to the grindstone. 
Now that's the uh, that's the Candlestick Park concert that yes. they uh, that they end with. Yes, and that's that. You know, what got you interested in doing this? Because this uh, is a massive undertaking. It is. It is a. It is a life's work. I mean, I will all if to finish. You know, five more books after this. It, I, it's projected to take me forty six years to do the entire thing. Um, and, you know, you have to have a life. You have to raise children and go to the grocery store and take care of the leaves in your yard and all those other things along with doing this. And then I do a podcast and they're just it's I write for five different magazines, because if you're going to write the book, you have to sell the book. You can't just write it and hope that it's going to sell itself, you know, so um, I do a lot of work outside, but the the obsession started when I um, got off the school bus in December, and this is before Ed Sullivan, December of 1963. We've got two months to go before Ed Sullivan. And my friends met me with a 45 uh, cover sleeve that had a picture of the Beatles in black and white. I'm thinking it was a VJ cover. I'm guessing that's what it was and said, these are the Beatles. You have until recess to pick one to fall in love with. <laughs> and I was this very studious kid, not one to fall in love with someone by recess. And so I picked George from the picture and I could tell they were crestfallen by the whole thing, really disappointed in me. So I said, can I just have 24 hours to think about this? And I went home and, and did what I do, which is research found out I called all of their big sisters and asked them about these Beatles and who they were and who, what, tell me about each Beatle. And people didn't know very much because, you know, they still hadn't had a number one in America. I want to hold your hand doesn't go to number one for a couple of weeks. Information was pretty skinny, but um, from what I learned, John had started the band and he was the leader and the smart beetle. And that's all you had to tell me. And so I went back the next day and changed to John. But that, as the years went by and I learned his story and the fact that John endured more tragedy than probably anyone I've ever heard of. Um, I mean, his parents, for very complicated reasons, I'm not blaming either one of them, um, abandon him when he's four and a half to be raised by his aunt and uncle. He does not understand why they don't want him and why he lives with his aunt and uncle, nor does he understand why his aunt and uncle took him because every day when his aunt Mimi meets him at school at Dovedale Elementary, he says to her, Aunt Mimi, why are you here every afternoon when I get out of school? And she says the same thing every day because it is my duty to do so mm. that, that ain't what he wants to hear um his uncle george is so sweet to him and teaches him to read and takes him to the picture drums the movies sneaks him away to do fun things and teaches him to play the harmonica he's very loving to this little boy but when john is 14 and a half and just getting ready to really need Uncle George is a male role model. They send him away to Scotland for two weeks on holiday. Now, this wasn't weird 
He went to Scotland almost every summer to stay with his aunt and uncle and fish, and he loved it. His cousins were there. It was a fun thing. But this year, there was an ulterior motive. Um, uncle George was dying of cirrhosis of the liver, and they didn't want John there. And when he comes home, his aunt is at the sink peeling carrots, and she doesn't even turn around and look at him and just says, John, your uncle passed away and there's no crying about it. Their tears will do no good. And so this 14 and a half year old kid goes up to his room and starts laughing and can't stop. Hours go by and he's still laughing. Um, he's hysterical. And so they call for his mother, Julia, who lives a mile and a half away with a family of her own. She has two girls um, and lives with a, a gentleman named John Dykins, whom she loves very much and who loves her. And she comes over and sits on the bed with him and calms him and soothes him and says, listen, I know you lost your best friend, so I can't ever be your mother. You already have one, but I will be your new best friend. And she's true to her word. I mean, they become inseparable. He skips school to hang out with her. She teaches him to play the banjo and she plays American rock and roll for him. And they dance around and drink ginger beer and eat tea cakes and they become best friends. Um, she tells him that he has music in his bones and he's destined. He's destined to become a great star, the biggest star ever. And he believes her and forms a band and they rehearse at her house. And I mean, they are I, it, never were two people closer. And a year and a half later, she's hit by an off-duty policeman who is inebriated. He knocks her 40 feet in the air and kills mm. her. And now John has no one to love him. I mean, his aunt loves him, but she does not know how to express it. She's very stern, rigid woman, and he's alone. And for three weeks, he doesn't come out of his room. He is he's beside himself. And when he finally comes out, he is a different John. He is hard. He is very tight jawed and slant eyed. He's very serious dude. And, um, he goes off to Liverpool College of Art with a broken heart. And, you know, you think, well, that's the end of the story. It can't get worse than that. But it does because he finds a replacement for Julia, his mother, Stu Sutcliffe, who becomes his brother, his truly brother, his soulmate. And they when they're together, they're like one person. When they're apart, they write each other 20-page letters. They are as close as any friends can ever be. And two years later, Stu dies of a cerebral hemorrhage uh, at, at the age 21. So what I'm saying is John Lennon had every reason to give up. He had every reason to commit suicide. He had every reason to have a dark life. He had every reason to just say, I give up. That's it. I'm done. And he didn't. He turned his tragedy into the soundtrack of so many lives. And that's why that's why John Lennon, it's not because he was a great musician or an author or an artist or a peace activist. All those things are great. 
but it's because he is your number one prime example of someone that life beat up and he never gave up. Amazing. Yeah. And, and one of the things that I admire about what your project is that you are trying to, and in most cases you succeed dispelling the myth. I mean, let's face it. I mean, so many people have said so many things about John Lennon that how do you tell the difference? How do you tell the difference between what is truth and what is something that somebody's just em like embellished? Yeah. And you know, the thing is that you cannot, once a myth is lodged in society, it is almost impossible to dislodge it. People want to believe the myth instead of the truth. And I'll give you a great example. Um, there was a myth that the Beatles wrote, She Loves You, at the end of the Roy Orbison tour on one magical night in a hotel on Newcastle on Tyne, that they were sat in that hotel and it came to them and they wrote it that one night. And then the next day perfected it at Paul's house in Fourthland Road. Um, that is absolutely not true. On the Roy Orbison tour, Paul says in the anthology, John and I were working on a song throughout the bus tour and challenged by Roy Orbison and in his style, pretty woman, yeah, yeah, yeah. She loves you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We wrote a new song and that song was From Me to You. Well, ladies and gentlemen, from Me to You was written in February of that year. It was recorded on the 5th of March in EMI. And by the time the boys go on the Roy Orbison tour in June, From Me to You is already on the charts. So it wasn't From Me to You. The song that they wrote for those four weeks on the bus was She Loves You. And they hone it in Newcastle on Tyne. They hone it the next day in Fourth One Road, but it wasn't written on one magical night. It was like every other Beatles project, a work in progress. Those boys worked and they worked hard. And they wrote that song on the bus while they were touring around with Roy Orbison, inspired by him. Okay, nobody, people will not accept that because they want to go with the magical night theory. It just isn't true. Yeah. 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 There was no bombing raid on the night John Lennon was born. I went to the war office. I got the records. There was a Junkers 88 shot down over Egbert, which is outside of Liverpool. That's it. There was no bombing raid. But every book wants to start with John's Aunt Mimi running to the hospital in a bombing raid, which wouldn't have been allowed. She would have been arrested um, on the night he was born. These myths die hard. I can imagine that's you know, and and they die even harder when, when like say McCartney, is saying we wrote from me to you, on the bus. Well, he should know he's he was there. No, 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 it, he doesn't. It was just a slip. And the funny thing is, I can tell you what the Beatles did on almost any day and what they were wearing and what they ate. In fact, sometimes there's a big controversy about what they ate. I'll tell you about that, but. Um, but if you ask me, what did you do last Tuesday? It would take me a while to think about that. And I don't know that I could 
really recall what I did last Tuesday. I could piece it together, but I don't know if I'll remember what I ate and what I wore because it's just life to me, not something I'm studying. And it's just life to Paul. And he didn't recall that they did from me to you on March the 5th in EMI. And, you know, but that, yeah. you know, it, when once it's said, it's hard to extract. I can imagine. Tell me what they ate. Now I'm curious. <laughs> A big controversy about the 1964 North American tour in Montreal because the uh, young man that delivered the food to the Beatles told me that they had what is essentially in today's verbiage, chicken nuggets and French fries. And then someone after the book came out, wrote in and said, oh, no, oh, no. I know the promoter for that show. And he said they had hamburgers and chips <laughs> or French fries. I'm like, okay, people, get over yourselves. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're doing the best we can do, but really, I mean, there is controversy over everything. Um, and 60 years out, it's hard to pinpoint. But I mean, can you imagine arguing over, was it, Chicken nuggets or hamburgers. <laughs> Some people just don't have anything else to do, I guess, you know? <laughs> I guess. But now I was going to ask you that, um, you know, you do a podcast also. Yes. Well, what, what's it called? It's called She Said, She Said. And my co-host is Lena Stagg, who did the Recipe Record series, which is a great series of cookbooks on Be you know, Beatles topics and music topics. Um, and they're very clever titles. And then she gives you a listening playlist to go with each one of the recipes. When she wrote these books, there was no, I won't say her name because she'll come on A-L-E-X-A. -E they didn't exist. <laughs> but now you can go in the kitchen and ask that individual to yeah. play the list for you. And while you're cooking, you can listen to the songs that go with each recipe. So we've been friends for many, 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 many years. And last year we had the um, honor of being able to interview uh, Rogue Best, who has the Beatles uh, Museum in, on Matthew, in Matthew Street in Liverpool to talk to John's sister, Julia, and the very first, one of the first bass players for the Beatles, pre-Paul, Chaz Newby, who passed away just a few months ago. Love Chaz Newby, sweet man. Um, to talk to Angie and Ruth McCartney, uh, Paul's stepsister and stepmother, and so many of the members of the Beatles family. So we've had a good time doing it. Um, we are getting ready to interview a band called Cowboy Mouth, who is a very popular country rock band and they released a song a couple of days called the night john lennon died um huh. really touching song so you know like you i know you know doing this sort of thing enriches your life because of all of the great people that you meet and i've loved it don't you love doing what you do oh yeah i wouldn't be doing it if i didn't yeah, yeah. john lennon out of all the beatles has got to be the most complex I would, I would think. I don't know them, so I, I'm only assuming from what I see from the outside. Um, is that is that a fair statement for for me to make? Yes. Um, yeah. First of all, he's carrying a lot of baggage. 
Yeah. And anytime that you're carrying that much baggage, life, you know, is Ringo, it don't come easy, as Ringo tells us. It he John was very changeable. He could be in a great mood and then in a terrible mood, and it could change with the wind. Probably today we would diagnose John as being depressed and we would recommend medicine to even out the mood swings. I mean, he had every reason to be depressed. He um, he lost a lot of people who loved him and he kept thinking that the next big thing would make him happy. If I can just get a band, if the band can just get a manager, if the manager can just get us a recording contract, if we can just get a number one, if we can just get on the TV show, it was always Alan Williams, their first manager, used to say, John, you're all about the next big thing. But the thing is that none of the next big things, not drugs, not getting a new wife, not being a peace activist, not being on the Dick Cavett show, not not anything was making John Lennon happy. And all he was trying to do, he tells you on the White Album in the song Julia, he says, half of what I say is meaningless, but I say it just to reach you, Julia. He still wants his mother. He still wants her to, she's gone, but he's saying, can't you see you should have kept me. You should have loved me. You should have cherished me because look, I'm smart and I'm talented and I'm worthy. And that hole in his heart did not go away for a long, 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 long time. And it's just, uh, that makes you complicated, you know, oh, yeah. and, and his opinions change. People get mad because they think, well, he said this and then he said that. And I said, but that's six years apart. We're allowed to change our opinions on things in six years, you know, and and then, of course, he gets blamed for a lot of things that other people say. For example, in 1964, during one of the press conferences um, in Cleveland, a reporter says to the Beatles, what do we need to be spending our tax money on police protection for you? You should be able to protect yourselves. And Paul diplomatically says, well, you know, there's not many people that could protect themselves against 8,000 fans who are trying to get to them, you, you, you see. And then George says, well, maybe you could protect yourself because you're fatter than we are. <laughs> John, you see him in the video go because he knows, <laughs> he knows what's going to happen. The very next day in the paper, he's accused of saying that. And, and this went on in every so many instances where somebody else will smart off and he's accused of saying it. So yes, he's a very complicated person. Yes. He had every reason to be, but sometimes it wasn't John. <laughs> One of the things that I don't know if you've gotten to it yet in, in your series, when you're talking about controversial things, we're bigger than Jesus. Um, now that was from what I've read, that was said months before it became public. It was in a British magazine, and then it got misquoted here in the States. 
They quoted it correctly, but they lifted it out of context. And to understand what's going on in 1965, there was a hit book. It was the number one book. People can go and look it up by Hugh Schoenfeld called The Passover Plot. And it's a it's not a novel. It's a serious treatise um, about the fact that the disciples misunderstood Jesus which I think is pretty well accepted. They they kept saying, you know, no, don't let this happen. And you got to walk away from this. And, you know, that they didn't understand. And that's what John says. He says, to me, the disciples were thick and ordinary. Um, he's lifting that from this book. He was an avid reader. He read three books a week. This is a best-selling book. He thinks he's being very intellectual by agreeing with Hugh Schoenfeld. Um, They say, Schoenfeld says, this belief system is on the wane and actually church attendance in 1965-66 was on the wane because young people as you know what's happening then they're headed toward hippie days you know they're going to be are you going to san francisco by the summer of 67 so the kids are becoming uh independent drug aware make love not war the generation gap so yes john what's john saying is true he says it initially to Maureen Cleave, who is a good friend of his and a respected journalist for the London Evening Standard. She interviews him for four hours and he gets very comfortable, which you should never do, spilling his guts to her and talking from the heart. And he's saying he wants, John very much wants a belief system, very much. In fact, he returns to it later in life. But he's saying to her, you know, I, I can't buy into this because, you know, look, it's it's already not relevant to the kids of today. Look, we're bigger than Jesus, not meaning, you know, we're greater or we're more important, but we're bigger. We're selling huge records. We're selling out concerts. We are more popular. We're more popular. Um, and she prints it. And it's in April of 1966, and no one bats an eye in England. They don't, it, they understand, they hear what he's saying. But Date Book lifts just those words out, and they put it in their summer edition right before the Beatles are coming back to do the 1966 North American tour. And a DJ in Birmingham, Alabama, whom I got to uh, speak with, and who's his son has uh, formed a band called Black Tie, uh, Black Tie Symphony, I believe is the name of it. And he has spent his life doing Beatles tribute shows <laughs> because he feels so bad about what happened. Um, his dad thought it would be a great PR promotion for the Birmingham radio station to host a Beatle burn. He did not think about the hate it would foment and the hate spread and of course, John was made to apologize 18 different times in every city that they went to on the 1966 North American tour. And he tried at first to explain it by saying, I didn't mean that we were greater or more important, or I was just saying there were more people attending our concerts. And, you know, it didn't do any good. I, I went to speak about I don't know, eight or nine years ago to a um, rotary club in 
a southern city close to me. And when people found out that I was talking about John Lennon, they got up and walked out. Oh, my gosh. Bill haven't forgiven him, you know, which is I don't think what we're supposed to do. But people did not get that he was not dissing Christianity. He was saying if it doesn't become more relevant, it's going to wane. And you know what? It was a wake up call because what do we have now? Churches with jumbotrons for teenagers, teen services, teenagers playing guitar. And it, in a way, it challenged them to step up to the plate and up their game. So now I got to ask you this one final question here. Yeah. Given that your name is Jude, what's your favorite Beatles song? (laughs) Yeah, this is always hard for me because. Um, my favorite Beatles song is a cover song and, um, they, you know, people are like, oh my gosh, you don't even choose a Beatles original. What the heck? Um, but when John Lennon sings, baby, it's you, which the Shirelles originally sang, you, you can hear his heart. You can hear the little boy who is in another room overhearing his aunt Mimi and his uncle George or George, as he called him, talk about his mother and how she's no good. And she's living in sin because she's living with John Dykins because Fred Lennon will not give her a divorce. And she's a bad influence on the little boy and he should be taken away from her. And you hear him saying, it doesn't matter what they say, you know, I'm going to love you any old way. And it's true. And that song as much as Julia is a tribute to his mother and it just breaks my heart. Every time I hear it, he does it from the heart and it's my favorite. Fantastic. Well, the author is Jude Sutherland Kessler and the new audiobook is volume three of the John Lennon series. Uh, she loves you. There is a five so far. And there's going to be a, another one coming out, I imagine, pretty soon. Yes. And I want to say of all the projects I've ever done, and I work really hard on these books because you have to footnote almost every sentence. So they're very difficult to write. But of all the projects I've ever done, the audiobook is without a doubt the best. Scott R. McKinley, who did the audiobook for Jay Bergen's Lennon, the Mobster and the Lawyer, is award winning. He's such a good... He sent, yes, he was on the show. Okay, he sent me um, the uh, his audiobook, and I'm very picky about people who impersonate John Lennon. In fact, most of them make me angry. And this guy was so good. And I called him and I said, can you do Paul and Ringo and George as well as you do, John? He said, I think so. And I said, how about Brian? Long story short, he did 183 of the most famous voices, voices we know, Ed Sullivan and Sid Bernstein and Trini Lopez and Bobby Goldsboro. They're all in the book. It's the height of Beatlemania. And Scott McKinley is a genius. He takes you there. I've never been, you know, I don't, really tout my books. I believe in them, but I don't, this is the best thing any Beatles fan can ever listen to. It's 33 hours and it costs $16. You can't get, I mean, it's 50 cents an hour. Uh, Yeah. You can't, you can't get a hot dog for that anymore. No. (laughs) No. And it is, it's, it's magical. It's really magical. And if you want to find out more, your website is johnlennonseries.com. 
And you can log on to that and find out the, all the books, and you can buy them there too. So, Jude, I w hope you come back when the when the next book comes out. I would love it. This has been so much fun. I really appreciate you having me on your show. Thank you.